Well, we are in this uh, 13th chapter, Lord willing, again, finishing it up. We're moving very close to the, ever closer to the suffering and the death of our Lord Jesus. You'll remember it's Thursday night. It's just the hours away, literally hours away before the crucifixion of our Lord. And he's celebrating the Passover with his uh, disciples in the upper room. And uh, with his time with his disciples coming to a rapid conclusion, he's pouring out, the Lord is pouring out his love upon them in this final discourse with them. Again, at the top of the chapter, John has reminded us of the love of Christ. He says, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. Uh, in the vernacular, you could say he loved them to the max. He loved them to the fullest extent of divine capacity to love. And contrasting that immediately, while the Lord is expressing his divine love for those who belong to him, Judas has already given himself over to be an instrument of uh, satanic hatred towards our Lord. Verse 2, during supper, the devil having already put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon, to betray him. So again, I told you, none of this catches the Lord off guard. He knows all this is going to happen. He knows in advance of what's going to happen because he's the sovereign Lord God, and it's all part of the plan. Uh, In fact, he is the one, Isaiah 46.10 says, who declares the end from the beginning and from ancient times, things which have not been done, saying, my purpose will be established and I will accomplish all my good pleasure. So again, the Lord knows that Judas is going to betray him. He anticipates that fact. He declares that reality in advance of it happening. So that might gird up the faith of uh, his disciples, encourage them after that betrayal occurs. So again, that they would understand he knows it's all part of God's eternal plan. In verse 31 of the chapter, Judas has been commanded by the sovereign Lord God, our, our, our Savior, to depart because the Lord wants to finish the Passover meal with his 11 true disciples. And I think that's an important issue here because now what you have before the Lord is his true followers. You have true disciples of Christ. And what he says to them, the encouragement, the promises that he is about to make in these next few chapters as they unfold was for them. It was for them, not for false followers. Not for fake disciples like Judas. Uh, Christ, again, is pouring out his love upon those who are his own uh, from out of the world. And so with these 11 true followers of Christ at his side, the Lord is going to permanently do away with the celebration of the Passover, uh, which is the oldest Jewish institution except for the Sabbath. Again, something that the nation of Israel had celebrated for the past 1,500 years And he's going to replace it with a completely new remembrance called the Lord's Supper that we'll have the privilege of taking here at the end of our hour. And again, the celebration is no longer going to be a remembrance of what God did in the deliverance from Israel, the nation of Israel's deliverance from their bondage in Egypt. But now it's going to be a permanent remembrance of what the Lord Jesus Christ is about to do on their behalf as that unfolds the next day on Friday afternoon upon Calvary's cross by the shedding of his blood. So it's the death of Christ that opens the door, the, the door of deliverance. Uh, it's the death of Christ that uh, provides forgiveness of uh, sin, uh, removal of guilt, uh, removal of condemnation and bondage to sin for all who would repent and believe. And we've sang about that numerous times this morning. And, and again, when Christ sets aside the, the Passover and permanently installs the Lord's Supper, it really is a tremendous turning point in redemptive history. Because at that moment, he's setting aside the entirety of the Old Testament economy, the Old Covenant. And he's going to inaugurate and ratify the New Covenant by the shedding of his blood. Uh, Something, again, that no mere man can do. Something that only can be done by one who has absolute power and and absolute authority. And that's the King of Israel, uh, the Lord of glory, God incarnate, the Lord Jesus Christ. And we looked previously as we were working our way through this text. We saw that at the dismissal of Judas... That really sets into uh, sets off a series of events that again are going to climax with the death of the Lord Jesus Christ again by way of crucifixion in just a very few hours. And it's amazing as you look at what we would see as the height of humiliation, the height of uh, shame, the height of uh, disastrous defeat from men's vantage point, the crucifixion of our Lord Jesus Christ. He actually sees that as a point of glory. Verse 31, when therefore he had gone out again, Judas... When he had gone out, Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and will glorify him immediately. And we looked at the various ways in which God, uh, both God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, are actually glorified, how they are putting themselves 
uh, on display because that's really the idea behind that word glory, putting themselves on display there at Calvary's cross. We saw that it was out of love that God the Father sent the Lord Jesus Christ into the world to be the substitute. We saw that out of love Jesus Christ willingly submits and comes to be that substitute. Uh, he compassionately dies as the substitute. He suffers the punishment for our sin, thereby buying our redemption with the price of his own blood. He buys our redemption with the price of his blood. He defeats sin, death, and the devil at the same time. Verse 33 says, little children, right? That's the Lord speaking to them. And again, just as, uh, by the way, it's the only time the word's ever used uh, in the Gospels. It's used elsewhere in First John, uh, again, by the Apostle John, whom Jesus expressly loved or especially loved. He uses it about seven times, but it's the only time this technon word is used here in, in the Gospels. It's a, it's a word that expresses tender feelings. It's the, the tender feelings that a father would have for his own child uh, and, and who is in need of help, need of encouragement, need of protection. He says, little children, I'm with you a little while longer. And while you seek me, uh, you shall seek me. As I say to the Jews, now I say to you also, where I'm going, you cannot come. He's going to enter into glory. And, and to enter into glory, he's going to have to depart. And so he's very graciously, as again, a kind father, tenderly telling them that's what's going to happen. He's explaining to them that he's going to leave soon. They can't follow him into heaven at the moment. He will tell them that they'll follow him later, but not now. So again, he's telling them for a moment they're going to be separated, but they will one day be reunited. Again, very soon, Jesus is headed to the cross. And again, from the world's standpoint, the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ looks like an utter devastating defeat as a criminal upon Calvary's cross. But again, from the divine perspective, it's all part of the plan. And in fact, instead of it being a defeat, in reality, is the greatest act of glory. It's the greatest act of glory on behalf of God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, because in that one act, God accomplishes redemption for every person who will ever believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ throughout all of human history. It's a monumental display of the glory of God and the glory of Christ. So again, with these 11 true disciples in the room, Christ wants them to focus properly on what's about to unfold the next day, his glory. His glory that is upcoming, because all true disciples, all true followers of Christ, uh, have a desire for the glory of Christ, just as properly both God and Christ have a, a desire for their glory. Verse 34 says, A new commandment I give you, that you love one another, even as I have loved you, that you love also one another by uh, verse 35 by this all men will know that you're my disciples if you have love for another we spent the entirety of our time last lord's day looking just at these two verses uh, because the lord says this is how you know this is how you know this is how you tell someone's true from someone who's false this is how you know that someone is a true follower of christ a true disciple uh, they have a love for the brethren uh, a true follower of christ loves those for whom christ has laid down his life for and they love those whom Christ has laid down his life for in the same manner that Christ has loved them or in the same manner that Christ has loved us. So again, genuine believers, true Christians, those who are genuinely saved, they're converted. They've been transformed. They've been changed from the inside out, as I said last time. It's because the Lord God has done a heart work on those who truly belong to him. He's placed within them the person of the Holy Spirit taken out that heart of stone and given to us a heart of flesh and he's transformed us again by the uh, putting the holy spirit residing within us he's transformed and marked us out and there's evidence of that change from the inside out with the holy spirit living within us and as one of the fruits of the holy spirit is in galatians 5:22 is love right it's the first fruit it's the first first evidence that there's something different in a man who's been transformed and changed we spent a long time last time talking about that fact that now we love others, right? We now love others because first God has loved us in Christ. And we saw the kind of love that God calls us to demonstrate towards others. It's a sacrificial love uh, where we put the interests of others above our own interests. We saw that it's a love not based on feelings, but it's a love based on a determined act of the will. We saw it's a love of choice, a love of choice that we are commanded to exercise in divine-like love on behalf of others uh, loving them again as Christ has loved us. We love others, even those perhaps who may not even care for us. We're commanded to love others who may even hate us. We're, we're commanded to love others who might even be our enemies. 
That's the same kind of God-like agape love that God has shown to us through the person of Jesus Christ. And that's the kind of love that can only be demonstrated by someone who's been genuinely transformed and changed. It's the kind of love that only can be demonstrated by someone who's truly regenerate. Someone who themselves have been the recipient of God's tremendous love towards them through the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. Someone who has seen their need of Christ and someone who's repented of their sin and placed their faith in God's Son, the Savior. So Christ loved us, therefore the command is we are to love others. And, and that command is continually, presently. Now I told you that the command to love is not new in the sense that the command to love was found in the Old Testament. But what is new in this context, a new commandment that I give to you, what's new is the ability to, lo- to, to love in this Christ-like fashion again, is new because of God's regenerating work. And it's new in the sense that the standard is much higher now that Christ has come to the world than it's ever been because the standard displayed amongst men is higher than it's ever been. Again, God incarnate, God in the flesh, he's come. He's come and he's laid down his life as a substitute for sinners. And the world has no concept of this kind of love. The world has no concept of this kind of love. The world has no ability to love in this fashion whatsoever. The world has no ability to love in any other fashion except in a self-serving manner. That's how the world loves. And Christ set aside, set aside the prerogatives of his deity and laid down his life for us. And as I told you, very, uh, very few times are we as Christians called to lay down our lives for others, but we are to lay down our life in, in a series of little deaths, if you will, We're to lay down our pride, our preferences, our desires. We're to lay down what we think we're entitled to for the sake of our fellow Christians in the body of Christ because that's what God has done for us. He set aside the prerogatives of deity to incarnate himself, to live among us, to be the substitute, to be our substitute. We don't deserve anything but God's condemnation. Anything that's going well in our life is an act of God's mercy and love and grace to us. And we are called, if we're genuine followers of Christ, to live with each other in that Christ-like, sacrificial, agape love. And again, it's a countercultural love. The culture knows nothing of this. When the world says love, they're really speaking lust. They have no concept of agape love. And again, this agape love that we're all called to follow and all called to demonstrate as genuine believers, again, happens only by somebody who's indwelt by the person of the Holy Spirit who now has a new capacity to love in this fashion. And again, that's one of the marks of a genuine believer, a true disciple, a true follower of Christ. 1 John 3.14, we know that we passed out of death into life. Why? Because we love the brethren. He who does not love abides in death. Notice there's nothing in here that says, well, I know that I've passed from life to death because i got a great doctrinal understanding of truth. You know, I've got a bunch of papers on the wall in frames that say how smart I am. I know that I've passed from a, from a death to life because I've got these certain gifts and signs and wonders and hocus-pocus things. And It doesn't say that. It just says love. You'll know. You'll know that you passed out of death into life because you love the brethren. And when Christ loved us, it wasn't a love just in word, but it was a love in deed and action. He who does not abide, he who does not love abides in death. First John 4 and 7, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. Everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. Verse 8 of that chapter, For the one who does not love does not know God, for God is what? God is love. That's, that's the standard. So again, a true follower of Christ, a true disciple of Christ, first and foremost, is consumed with the glory of God, the glory of Christ. Every morning they get up and they say, Lord, I just want to honor you with my life. Lord, help me to be pleasing to you this day, and I just honor you in everything that I do, and I put your glory on display, not my glory, but your glory. And then secondly, a true follower of Christ is consumed with an overwhelming love for the brothers whom Christ has laid down his life for to redeem. A new commandment I give you, that you love one another, even as I have loved you, that you may also love one another. By this, all men will know that you're my disciples, if you have love for one another. But there's a third mark here that demonstrates that somebody is a true disciple, a true follower of Christ. And that is that they all have, they, they have a, uh, uh, all loyalty to the Son of God. They have all loyalty to the Son of God. 
And that's the portion of scripture we've come to this morning here in verse 36. They have all loyalty to the Son of God. Verse 36, Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus answered, where I go, you cannot follow me now, but you shall follow me later. Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you right now? I will lay down my life for you. And Jesus answered, will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, a cock shall not crow until you deny me three times. Now, this conversation here in these verses uh, between Peter and the Lord arise from the Lord's declaration back up in verse 33, where he says he's leaving them. And this dialogue here with Peter illustrates doubly the extent of Christ's love that is made possible uh, through his sacrifice on the cross. Uh, On one hand, uh, his uh, conversation here demonstrates the eternal significance of that love because he's going to grant uh, eternal life to his disciples. On the other hand, or secondly, it's evidence of the power of the love of Christ for them since Christ's love will prove greater than the disloyalty and the cowardice of Peter and really all of the other disciples. Christ's love is going to prove stronger than their cowardice because at one point all the disciples are going to flee. It's not just Peter. Peter denies him, but they're all going to flee from the Lord Jesus Christ in his time of most great need. So it's really a tremendous portion of Scripture, like all of this has really been. It's a tremendous portion of Scripture that shows not only Christ's love for his own, for those whom he loves out of the world. It's also a picture that really shows us that we would, we really don't understand our own weaknesses as humans. We, we don't understand our own weakness, uh, even as redeemed individuals. We don't understand our, our own inability to live up to the standards that we even say that we ourselves affirm. And this portion of scripture shows that. Now, again, Christ knows everything. He knows exactly what's going to happen here. He knew the promises that Peter and the disciples would make. He knew they weren't going to be able to keep them. He knew Judas was going to betray him. He knew the evil plans of the false religious leaders. He he knew Satan's evil plans. He knows everything because, again, he's God come in the flesh. And the whole thing is part of the eternal plan and purposes of God. Jesus knew that the Roman soldiers would come for him. Jesus knew that Judas would betray him with a kiss. Uh, Jesus knew there'd be a mock trial. He knew of the horrendous suffering they would face him upon uh, the cross. He knew that he was going to die, but he also knew that he was going to be raised from the dead. Again, nothing that unfolds catches him off guard because he's the all-knowing, all-powerful one. Everything's going to happen just as it was written. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? And don't you think it's interesting? We spent an entire time on the fact of loving one another, and Peter doesn't even ask a single question concerning brotherly love that the Lord has just given practical instructions on. But what Peter does, rather, is he focuses on those things which Christ has purposely kept him in the dark on. Again, verse 33 says, I am with you a little while longer. You shall seek me where I'm going. You cannot come. Lord, where are you going? Peter, I just told you where I'm going. You can't come. Yeah, where where are you going? Right? That, that's Peter. He has a desire to know the secret things. He has a desire to have his curiosity gratified rather than to have further instruction on practical application of loving others as Christ has loved us. We're just going to pass over that. So you can get a pass if you weren't here last week. All of that stuff on loving your brothers wasn't all that important anyway. It's okay if you weren't here. Well, let's just get on. Where are you going? All right? Now, it's not true. I was just kind of being facetious there, but you get the point, right? Peter just like, never even happened. Where are you going? Where you told me I can't be. I, I need to know. Lord, where are you going? Again, the disciples, they can't grasp the fact that the Lord is going to leave them. They can't grasp the fact that Jesus has repeatedly told them he's going to die. Matthew 16, verse 21. From that time, Jesus Christ began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem, suffer many things, from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and raised up on the third day. Verse 22, Peter took him aside and rebuked him, saying, God forbid it, Lord, this shall never happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. You're a stumbling block to me, for you're not setting your mind on God's interest, but on man's. I think Peter heard, right? It's never going to happen to you, Lord. I think he heard the words. Matthew 17, verse 22, while they're gathering together in Galilee, Jesus said to them, the Son of Man is going to be delivered to the hands of men. Verse 23, they will kill him. He'll be raised on the third day, and they were deeply grieved. 
Matthew 20, verse 18, Behold, we're going up to Jerusalem. The Son of Man will be delivered to the chief priests and scribes. They will condemn him to death. They will deliver him to the Gentiles to mock and scourge and crucify him. And on the third day, he'll be raised up. Mark 9.31, he was teaching his disciples, telling them the Son of Man is going to be delivered in the hands of men. They will kill him, and when he has been killed, he will rise up three days later. But they did not understand the statement, and they were afraid to ask him. Mark 10.32, they were on the road going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking ahead of them, and they were amazed, and those who followed were fearful. And again, he took the twelve aside and began to tell them what was going to happen to him, saying, Behold, we're going up to Jerusalem. The Son of Man will be delivered to the chief priests and the scribes. They will condemn him to death. They will deliver him to the Gentiles. They will mock him and spit on him and scourge him and kill him. And three days later, he will rise again. Luke chapter 9, verse 22, the Lord speaking, saying, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, the scribes, and be killed and be raised up on the third day. Luke 18, verse 31, he took the twelve aside and said to them, Behold, we're going to Jerusalem. All things that are written through the prophets about the Son of Man will be accomplished, for he will be delivered to the Gentiles, be mocked, mistreated, and spat upon. And after they have scourged him, they will kill him. And on the third day, he will rise again. They understood none of these things, This saying was hidden from them. They did not comprehend the things that were said. Where I'm going, you can't come. Lord, where are you going? One, they just couldn't grasp the concept that he was going to leave them. And they just couldn't grasp the concept that he had repeatedly told them he was going to die. They couldn't understand it. They couldn't understand it, I think, in part of their preconceived concept of the immediate establishment of the kingdom and the fulfillment of all the Old Testament covenants and promises uh, made to the the Messiah. They couldn't comprehend it. They, They could not understand that Jesus would leave. Most certainly they couldn't understand that he would die. It just did not compute in their thinking. Lord, where are you going? Jesus answered, where I go, you cannot follow me now, but... You shall follow me later. It's a word of hope. Jesus is going to glory. He's on his way to heaven uh, to sit at the right side of his father. And it was not time in God's eternal plan for Peter, or by way of implication, the rest of the disciples, to follow Jesus at this moment into heaven, but they will come later. But Peter, as he often is, he's not satisfied. He's not satisfied with the Lord's answer. And so he gives to the Lord this hasty reply because he's not willing to let the issue go. Verse 37, Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you right now? I will lay down my life for you. Now, I I think a statement, no doubt, made out of the sincerity of heart, uh, Peter's heart. But again, a demonstration that he doesn't know his heart very well. He doesn't understand how weak he is. J.C. Ryle offers this. He says, a very dangerous reality in the life of a believer is self-ignorance. Overassessing your spiritual maturity, overassessing your spiritual strength. And that's Peter. He didn't understand himself. Peter said to him, Lord, why can I follow you now? I'll lay down my life for you. Verse 38, Jesus answered, Will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, a cock shall not crow until you deny me three times. Now, there's a parallel account of this over in Matthew chapter 26. In Matthew chapter 26, the Lord makes this prophetic announcement. He says to them, Lord, or Jesus said to them, you will all fall away from me because of, uh, uh, all fall away because of me this night. For it is written, I will strike down the shepherd and the sheep uh, of the flock shall be scattered. So just put a little mark there if you'd like and follow me just back to John 26. John 26, 31. Again, the Lord makes this prophetic announcement. He says, you will all fall away, me, fall away because of me this night. For it is written, strike down the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. Now again, in the context, you'd have to imagine this comes as another shock, another tremendous shock to these disciples because he is just, the Lord has just be, uh, revealed who the betrayer is going to be. Now he says each one of them is going to deny him. Each one of them are going to flee. Each one are going to forsake him. Each, all are going to defect, including Peter. Peter makes this boastful statement, verse 33. 
Peter answered and said to him, Even though all may fall away because of you, I will never fall away. Now, in, in the Greek, the, the pronoun I is very emphatic. So it's very much along the lines of this. I, even though all, I will never do this. I won't do it. Yeah, you know that guy Matthew, he's a little shady. He might do it. He, he might stoop down to this level. He might abandon you in your hour of need. James and John, you know, I can see those guys getting involved in something like this. I, I, they might do it. They might fall away into this trap. But I won't do it. I'll never turn away. I'm not sure you can really trust my brother Andrew. He might give in because he's kind of weak. I wouldn't put it past him, but I never. I will not, never. I, I will never fall away. Now, somebody has suggested here that in the technical language of uh, commentators and theologians that Peter is suffering from what is called a transient abnormal enlargement of his cranium <laughs> or in the vernacular a swelled head right he has a tremendously overinflated opinion of himself Peter answered and said to him even though all may fall away because of you I will never fall away Jesus said to him truly I say to you that you this very night before the cock crows you shall deny me three times Verse 35, Peter said to him, Even if I have to die with you, I will not deny you. All the disciples said the same thing too. Now the only person in the room that knows what's going to happen is the Lord Jesus Christ. He knows what's going to happen. The disciples don't. They don't understand their own weakness, and they don't understand the power that Satan is going to bring against them and test them with in the next few hours. Even if I have to die with you, I will not deny you. All the disciples said the same thing too. Now, I'm quite positive that the Peter and the other disciples, what they say, uh, these, when they say these words, they genuinely mean them. I have no doubt of their sincerity. I have no doubt of their love for Christ. I have no doubt of their devotion and their desire to be devotion to him. They all want to follow him. But the reality is, in a very short amount of time, each and every one of them is going to desert him. Each and every one is going to desert Christ. Again, verse 31, Christ says they're all going to defect. Verse 35, they protest, and if you read it on a little bit further down, Verse 26, the end of the church, towards the end of the chapter, you see, then all the disciples left him and fled. They all left. Because they don't understand themselves. They don't understand their weakness. They don't understand their own inability to live up to the standard that they say they even themselves want to affirm. And you know, sadly, I think the same thing is true of all of us. Because we just like Peter, we say we love the Lord Jesus Christ. We say that we're willing to stand for him or to stand with him and to identify ourselves with him. Yet there's times in our life when the pressure is placed upon us by the unbelieving world that we defect. We cave. We deny Christ. We retreat from identification with Christ. Times that we should have spoken up, but we were silent. Times that we should have been bold for Christ, but we were not. We defected. We were disloyal. Because, again, we really don't understand ourselves, and I don't think we understand the words that Christ says in John fifteen five, where he says, apart from me, you can do nothing. The truth is, we not only come to a saving knowledge of the truth, not by ourselves and our own power, we, don't, we come to a saving knowledge of the truth by God's mercy to us through the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, Again, not on our own strength, not in our own power, and not in our own strength can we even walk with Christ or maintain a proper relationship with Christ without God's mercy to us through Christ, without his power. Our ability is not in ourselves. Our sufficiency is not in ourselves. Our, our sufficiency and our ability, our confidence is always found not in ourselves again, but it's always found in Christ. That's where our power comes from. That's where our strength comes from. That's where our divine life comes with. Uh, comes from. That's where the ability to do battle with the world, the flesh, and the devil come from. And again, we're all desperately in need to learn exactly how weak we are. All desperately uh, must know that constantly, moment by moment, we have to be abiding in Christ. What does that mean to be abiding in Christ? It means to be in constant contact with, linked in a vital relationship always. In this John 15 passage, Jesus gives an analogy. He says, I'm the vine, you're the branches. He abides in me, and I in him. He bears much fruit. From apart from me, you can do nothing. 
Now, I don't know if you've got vines on your property or plants on your property, but you go out and you sever one of those vines from the root, that branch is going to die. Right? And that relationship between the vine and the branch, there has to be a constant connection. There has to be a constant, constant uh, life-giving flow, moment by moment. The branch can never be cut off from the root if it's going to survive. And that's the way it is in our relationship with Christ. It's always about him. It's all about him. That, that has to be our relationship with him, moment by moment. We don't just walk with the Lord Jesus Christ when we come to church on a Sunday. We walk with him moment by moment. You get up in the morning and you say, Lord, help me to honor you this day, glorify you. You stop and get a cup of coffee and say, Lord, from here to, from here to lunch, help me honor and glorify you. And from lunch to dinner and from dinner to, to bed, right? I mean, it's just moment by moment. An event comes up and you stop and you pray about that because you're in the constant presence of God in Christ, right? You sin, you repent of it immediately. There has to be a constant abiding, a constant contact. And again, in the context of our story, Christ knows everything. The disciples don't know anything. And again, nothing catches our Lord off guard because, again, he's the all-knowing, all-powerful. And he says, look, everything's going to happen just as it is written. That in, the, in this Matthew 26 passage, verse 31, it says, Then Jesus said to them, You will all fall away because of me this night. Fall away or be made to stumble, be offended. Scandalizo is the, the word in the Greek. We get our English word scandalize. Uh, the, 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 the literal idea of the, of the verb is a crooked stick that's used as a trap, you know, that holds up uh, the trap and the, the stick gets knocked out and you get this, the trap is sprung, so you're caught. And Jesus is saying, look, all of you are going to be trapped. Scandalized. All of you are going to be trapped in connection with me. All of you are going to become ensnared. All of you 11 who are really true, you're going to become untrue. All of you are going to deny me. All of you are going to be offended because of me. Which, again, is the very opposite of what they thought of themselves, the very opposite of believing and delighting him. And therefore, again, he says, Christ says they're going to turn away from him. They were all going to disassociate themselves from him. All forsake him. And again, Jesus knew this. Because it's all part of the divine plan. Jesus said to them, you will fall away uh, because of me this night. Here it is. For it is written... And this is what is written. I will strike down the shepherd and the sheep of the flock shall be scattered. This is all going to happen because this is written down beforehand. It was written down in advance. This, uh, it was written, it comes out of, uh, it's a quote from Zechariah 13, verse 7. I'll strike down the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. Now I wish we had time to go into this. Originally when I sat down to put my notes together. I wanted to go down this tangent, but it, it's very helpful, very encouraging, but we just can't because of time, maybe sometime in the future. But all this to say is the Lord knows the disciples are going to deny him. They're, they're all going to reject him. And again, this is exactly what they do because this is exactly what God's word said they were going to do. And again, when he says, uh, it is written, strike down the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. That's an initial fulfillment, a partial fulfillment of Zechariah's prophecy, uh, fulfillment in its infancy. And again, that's exactly what happened. At a certain moment in the evening, the Lord is arrested, they all run off, they all abandon him. But they're going to come back because they're true disciples. And I think it's not only is this reference out of Zechariah to the disciples are going to come back, but it back, it's also a, a reference to far in the future, right before the return of Christ, they're all going to come back. They meaning the nation of Israel. Because in part of the context of this Zechariah 13, Passage is Zechariah twelve ten, which says they'll look upon the one whom they have pierced and they'll mourn. One day, nation of Israel will finally get it. One day, the nation of Israel will finally realize that Jesus is indeed their Messiah. But again, Christ is no unwilling victim. He knows absolutely everything that's going to happen before it occurs, because he has divine supernatural knowledge. He knows all of his disciples are going to forsake him. They're going to flee. He knows he's going to die. But he also knows he's going to defeat death. You will all fall away from me this night, for it is written, I will strike down the shepherd, and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. Verse 32. But after I have been raised, I will go before you into Galilee. Again, it's hope of victory over death. Christ knows he's going to die. Christ knows that he's going to be raised from the dead, defeating death. 
He knows everything that's going to happen. The betrayal, the defection, the pain, the horror that awaits him. But he steadfastly sets his eye on Calvary's cross. The writer of the book of Hebrews says he does it for the joy set before him. He's going to go to the cross. He's going to defeat sin, death, and the devil. He's going to win eternal salvation for those who love him. Therefore, the writer of the book of Hebrews says we should be keeping our eyes always upon Jesus Christ. Not this world, but we should always be keeping our eyes upon Jesus Christ. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. That's where our gaze should be. Always abiding, constantly looking upon the person of Jesus Christ. Go back to... John 13. John 13, verse 37. Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. Verse 38, Jesus answered, Will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, a cock shall not crow until you deny me three times. Now, Peter said, look, even though all will fall away from you, I'll never fall away. Jesus said, before a crock, I say to you this night, before a cock crows, you shall deny me three times. Peter says, no, 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 I'm even willing to die with you. I, I will not deny you. Jesus says, you're going to lay down your life for me. Again, a cock shall not crow until you deny me three times. Peter says, Jesus says. Peter says, Jesus says. Again, Peter thinks far too highly of himself. And Peter's not listening to the words of the Lord. And Peter, by his continually not listening to the words of the Lord, he's saying that the Lord's words are not true. He's saying, no, Lord, you're wrong. We've probably never done that, right? Any of us in the room? Oh, Lord, no, you're wrong. Probably nobody in the room has ever refused to listen to the Lord the one who knows all things, the one who knows you and me better than we know ourselves. We, we wouldn't do these kind of things, right? Peter not only thinks too highly of himself, Peter doesn't know what's going on in the heavenlies. He doesn't, he doesn't know what's going on in the background until the Lord reveals it to him. You don't have to turn there, but in Luke's version, it says this, Luke 22, verse 31. Again, Jesus is speaking. Luke 22, verse 31. Simon, Simon, behold, Satan has demanded permission to sift you like wheat, and I prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And once you've turned again, strengthen your brothers. And he said to them, Lord, with you I am ready to go both to prison and to death. And he said to you, Peter, the cock will not crow until you have denied me three times that you know me. And again, Peter's not much different than us. He's not listening. And in that Luke 22 passage, I think the Lord's really trying to shake him up a little bit. He doesn't call him Peter there, but he calls him Peter, which is his new name in Christ. He calls him his old name, Simon. 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 You're acting like who you used to be before you were converted. So Christ is trying to get his attention. He's trying to warn him that Satan wants to rock his world. Simon, Simon, behold, Satan has demanded permission to sift you like wheat. To sift wheat, you have to violently shake it. And Christ is warning him that that's coming. Christ is warning Peter that he's not as strong as he thinks he is. He's warning him that there's a violent satanic attack coming. That Peter's going to be shaken like he's never been shaken before. But Peter, in classic Peter fashion, says in essence, don't worry about it, I've got this. I'm your man. I'm sticking with you thin and through thick and thin all the way. And again, Peter thinks far too highly of himself. Peter said to him, Lord, can I follow you right now? I will lay down my life for you. Jesus answered, will you lay down your life for me? It's somewhat of an ironic statement there in John 13, right? Because the truth is, it's the Lord who's going to lay down his life for Peter. Somewhat of a voice of the prophetic, right? somewhat of a rebuke, somewhat of a ministry to Peter. Will you lay down your life for me? 
Truly, truly, I say to you, a cock shall not crow until you deny me three times. Again, you have Peter's words and you have Jesus' words. And it's Jesus' words that are going to be fulfilled. Commentator D.A. Carson points out this. He says, sadly, good intentions in a secure room after a good meal or good food are far less attractive in a dark garden with a hostile mob. At this point in the pilgrimage, Peter's intentions and self-assessment vastly outstrip his strength. Again, Peter thinks a lot much of himself. But once more here, in the context of the story, Christ manifests his deity because he knows what's going on. He manifests his omniscience. He's foretelling the fall of one of his own. And again, he's demonstrating to us the fact that Peter, although Peter has good intentions, listen, good intentions can't save you from a quote-unquote sudden fall. From a sudden fall. And there's really nothing sudden about the fall of Peter. And the truth is, there's nothing sudden about the fall of Peter. And if Peter could fall, then anybody else, any one of us in the room could fall. Any one of us could deny Christ if the moment presented itself. And again, Peter, who's just a normal guy, demonstrates many of the characteristics that we all possess. Similarities that could cause us to deny our Lord. Such things as Peter had a tendency to speak when he should have been listening. How often do you find that to be true? I'm a simple guy. Not very intelligent. But I have noticed that we have one mouth and two ears. I would suggest to you that means you probably need to be listening twice as much as you are speaking. But some people speak as, oh, they've got five or seven or 27 mouths. And my ears can't keep up with it because my ears have just melted off the side of my head because this person never quits talking. I've told you that most of my biblical counseling is 55 minutes of somebody else talking and five minutes of me listening, asking one or two questions, and everybody's happy when we get up and leave. Thank you so much. You're welcome. And I just actually had somebody tell me the other day, you're a good listener. It's because I've got two ears and one mouth. Peter had the tendency to speak too much. He spoke when he should have been listening. Again, how many times did the Lord tell Peter and the other disciples that he was going to lay down his life? How many times did he speak to them of the necessity of his death? I mean, if you want... You don't even have to go out of this book. You don't have to go very far. Just go back up to chapter 12, verse 32. Jesus said, And I, if I be lifted up from the earth, will draw all men to myself. Verse 33, he was saying this to indicate the kind of death that he was about to die. He just told them that. But Peter didn't listen. Again, all those passages I read... Luke 18, 31, 32, 33, they're going to scourge him. The, the, the son of man, they're going to kill him. Their day's going to rise. Even in the context of taking the last Passover meal together, when the Lord transforms it into the Lord's Supper, Luke 22, verse 20, that very evening when the Lord instituted the Lord's Supper, he said, this cup is poured out for you, is the new covenant, and the next three words, in my blood. In my blood. Peter didn't listen well. But again, we're no different. Sometimes we don't listen well. And sometimes it's difficult for us as men and women to believe the truth or to listen to the truth that the Bible puts forward, especially if it contradicts our preconceived ideas and notions. And not only did Peter not listen well, But Peter was grossly ignorant of the purpose for the death of the Lord Jesus Christ. He was grossly ignorant of why Jesus would come and die. Did not the Old Testament predict that there would be one who would come and suffer and die as a substitute? Is not that the picture that begins all the way back in Genesis chapter 3 with a substitute where the Lord provides garments? And all through the Old Testament, pictures of the uh, of sacrifice for sin through the shedding of the blood of lambs which could never take away the 
sin of mankind. Were not all those Old Testament sacrifices, were they not all pictures of the one who would come and stand in place and be the perfect substitute? Is that not what the 53rd chapter of the book of Isaiah speaks about? That he was despised, forsaken of men, a man of sorrows, acquainted with griefs. Surely our griefs he himself bore, our sorrows he carried, yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten, O God, afflicted. He was pierced through for our transgression, crushed for our iniquities, and the chastening for our well-being fell upon him, and by his scourging we are healed. And all of us, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way, but the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. He was oppressed, he was afflicted, he did not open his mouth like a lamb that was led to slaughter, and like sheep that is silent before its shears, he did not open his mouth. By oppression of the judgment he was taken away. As for this generation, who considered that he was cut off of the land of the living for the transgression of my people for whom the stroke was due? The Lord is pleased to crush him, putting him to death. If he had rendered himself a guilt offering, he will see his offspring. He will prolong his days, and the good pleasure of the Lord will prosper in his hand. As a result of the anguish of his soul, he will see it and be satisfied by his knowledge. The righteous one, my servant, will justify the many as he will bear their iniquities. It's substitution. Christ was sent to die. Now, Peter wasn't the only one who did understand the divine purpose in the coming of Christ or coming of the Messiah, because even after the crucifixion, even after the resurrection, Luke chapter 24, you remember that story on the road to Emmaus, the Lord is walking with some of his disciples who at that moment do not recognize him. Luke 24, verse 25, he said to them, O foolish men and slow of heart to believe in all the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary for the Christ to suffer these things and to enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them concerning the things uh, concerning himself and all of the scripture. Peter didn't suddenly fall. Peter didn't listen well. And Peter was grossly ignorant of what the Christ was to do. And what Christ was about to do, the Lord Jesus was about to do in his dying. And not only that, Peter was astonishingly, again, ignorant of himself and his own abilities. Greatly overconfident in his ability to stand firm with Christ, becoming a living example of Proverbs sixteen eighteen that says, Pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. Peter, in his pride, I think, also forgot the scripture that implores us to keep your heart with all vigilance, for from it flows the spring of life. Proverbs 4.23. Peter thinks a little too much of himself. He's not fearful of the sin in his own heart. He doesn't understand his personal weakness. And again, this third component, he doesn't understand the saving work of Christ. Ignorant of his own personal weakness, overconfident, relying on his own strength, He doesn't understand the saving work of Christ, and then he neglects, therefore, because he doesn't understand, he neglects the spiritual resources, if you will, that lead to his fall. Again, on the same night that the Lord takes Peter and others to the Garden of Gethsemane, the Lord goes out to pray. And before the Lord goes out to pray, in a most intense time of pleading with his his father, Luke 24, verse uh, Luke 22, verse 4, the Lord advises his disciples three times, pray that you may not enter into temptation. Pray that you may not enter into temptation, right? But when the Lord returns from his own intense time of prayer, he finds the, the men along with Peter not praying, but what? Sleeping. One writer says this, Peter's was the sleep of a falsely confident man who little considers his need of God's help. And again, I think that's a common problem for all of us at times. We pray so little. We spend little time in God's word. We're not consistent in our attendance in the gathering of the fellowship, not consistent in our church attendance. And I don't know if you knew this, but we also meet here every Sunday morning and evening. And I mean that pastorally, most graciously, because some of you remove yourselves from 50% of our time in God's Word together. That's a choice you have made. For whatever reason, you've made those choices. 50% of the time that we open God's Word 
together as a fellowship. And when we neglect spiritual resources, if we will, I think it reveals in us not only an, an ignorance and an overconfidence in ourselves, but I think it becomes much easier for our flesh to take over when we remove ourselves from these means that God has given to the body of Christ, uh, these means of sanctification. Therefore, it becomes much easier for us to be led into temptation to sin by our flesh. John Calvin says this regarding Peter's example. He says, let us learn to distrust our own strength and betake ourselves early to the Lord that he may support us by his power. We need Christ all the time. We need the body of Christ. We need to sit under the transforming work of the word all the time. Now again, Peter, Peter's foolish, although well-intended boast led him to failing the test of his... Uh, Love to Christ. Peter said to him, Lord, can I, why can I not follow you right now? Lay down my life for you. Jesus answered, Will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I said to you, a cock shall not crow until you deny me three times. What, what does that mean? What does a cock crow, or, or I think a lot of your translations probably say rooster crow mean? Well, guess what? They didn't have iPhones. So I don't know how in the world they ever functioned or managed life because they didn't even have what wristwatches. They didn't know what time it was. Right? So they divided the night into segments from sundown about three hours forward, maybe around 9 p.m. or so, was called evening. From 9 p.m. to midnight was called midnight. From midnight to 3 a.m. was called rooster crow or cock crow because around 3 a.m., if you live on the country, you know, uh, roosters start to crow, right? There's a faint hint of light in the distance, they start crowing. So morning would follow at 3 a.m. to, to 6 a.m. So when Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you, a cock shall not crow until you deny me three times, you say, look, Peter, before 3 a.m., you're going to deny me three times. And that's exactly what Peter did. But I don't know, maybe the Lord's rebuked him, subdued him to, to uh, uh, a bit here at this moment because Peter, he remains uh, uncharacteristically silent in the rest of the Lord's final discourse. He, Peter doesn't appear again in the narrative until John 18.10 where he takes that sword out there in the garden and cuts off the ear of the high priest's slave. Jesus answered, will you lay down your life for me? And again, that prophetic voice of Christ says, truly, truly, I say to you, a cock shall not crow until you deny me. Again, Jesus knows exactly what's going to happen. And again, that's exactly what happened. Judas betrays him with a kiss. The chief priest, the officers of the temple, the guard, they come out against Jesus. They arrest him, lead him away to the house of the high priest. Look over in uh, John. Or uh, Luke. Just back to chapter 22 of Luke. Luke 22, verse Verse 54, I'll pick it up there. Having arrested him, they led him away and brought him to the house of the high priest. But Peter was following at a distance. After they kindled the fire in the middle of the courtyard and sat down, together Peter was sitting among them and a certain servant girl seeing him as he sat in the fire and looking intently at him said, this man was with him too. Verse 57, but he denied it saying, Woman, I do not know him. A little later, another saw him and said, You're one of them too. Peter said, Man, I am not. And after an hour had passed, another man began to insist, saying, Certainly, this man was also with him, for he is a Galilean too. Verse 60, But Peter said, Man, I do not know what you are talking about. And immediately, while he was still speaking, a cock crowed. Verse 61, The Lord turned and looked at Peter. Peter remembered the word of the Lord that he had told him, and before a cock crows today, you will deny me three times. Verse 62, he, Peter, went out and wept bitterly. 
just agonizingly bitter grieving. An obviously depressing experience, one overwhelmed with grief. As someone has written, Peter boasted too much, prayed too little, acted too fast, followed too far, and ended up denying the Lord. But that's not the end of the story. While Peter fell, he's not forsaken. He denies the Lord, that's true, but the Lord doesn't cast Peter away. Peter doesn't lose his salvation. Because Peter's salvation was not won by Peter's ability to remain faithful to Christ. Peter's salvation was won just as ours is by the Lord Jesus Christ himself. And it was Christ's perfect eternal love for Peter that would not let him slip away. John 6 and 37, all the Father gives to me shall come to me. And the one who comes to me, I will certainly not cast out. Verse 39, this is the one of him who sent me that all, this is the will of him who sent me, that all that he gives to me I will lose nothing but raise it up on the last day. John 10 and 28, I give eternal life to them and they shall never perish and no one shall snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. This is exactly what John is talking about at the top of the chapter. When he said, now before the feast of the Passover, Jesus, knowing that the hour had come, that he should depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who are in the world, he loved them to the end. Again, I told you that's divine love without limits. To the extent of how much divine love can have, it's an eternal love. It's that same kind of agape love uh, that Paul speaks about in Romans 8.35. And he asks that rhetorical question. He says, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or a sword? And then he answers verse 37, But I say in all these things we are overwhelmingly conquered through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life nor angels nor principalities nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Peter failed in his test of loyalty for Christ, but he's not ultimately lost because Christ guarantees his eternal salvation. Go back to John. Look there in John 13:36. Christ guarantees his eternal salvation. Jesus answered to the question, where are you going? Where I go, you cannot follow me, but you shall. You shall follow me later. Now Peter, like Peter is, probably just heard the first part. Where I go, you can't follow me. But it was the second part that contained the hope of salvation, but you shall follow later. And again, remember, it wasn't just Peter who denied the Lord. They're all going to turn and flee from him this night. And Christ knows that. Look at the top of chapter 14, where he gives each and every one of them an encouraging hope. Let not your heart be troubled, verse 1, chapter 14, verse 1. Let not your heart be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you, for I go to prepare a place for you. Verse 3, if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. It's a promise of salvation. It's a promise of salvation not just to Peter, but it's a promise of salvation to the other disciples that they will follow him to heaven. Not on, not on their own merits, but on the grace and the mercy and the love of God through the person of Jesus Christ. Christ, after his own death, after his resurrection, Christ restores Peter's faith. Not only restores Peter's faith, but he actually restores him to service as an apostle. That passage in John 21, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said, tend my sheep, or tend my lambs. He said, again, a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said, shepherd my sheep. He said to him a third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because the Lord said to him a third time, do you love me? And he said, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Jesus said, tend my sheep. Verse 19 of John chapter 20, when he says, then follow me. Christ restores him. 
And Peter, as we know, is going to declare the gospel of grace in Jerusalem. He's going to perform many miracles in the name of Christ. He's going to preach on the love of Christ, that love that he has personally received that has affected him, and, and that great love that he, again, is a benefactor of from Christ, Christ's love, Christ's sacrifice for him. He is going to sit down and he's going to pen a couple books through the power of the Holy Spirit, and he's going to instruct his readers will love one another from the heart, First Peter 1, verse 22. And you need to do that since you've been redeemed with precious blood as a lamb, unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. Because you're those who have tasted the kindness of the Lord. You're those who have had an example to follow in his steps. Therefore, you're to keep above all things fervent in your love for one another because love covers a multitude of sin. Peter sat down and wrote those things because he had been the recipients of God's forgiveness and love through the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. Again, Christ, having loved his own who are in the world, loved them to the end. And it's the love of Christ and his death on the cross that not only exemplifies perfect love, it's Christ's love and his sacrifice there that it makes it possible for us who are once sinners to be made right before God. It's Christ's sacrifice on the cross that guarantees salvation for all who place our faith in him, even though we stumble and fall. Where I go, you cannot follow me now, but you shall follow later. And Peter's not only going to follow Jesus to heaven, but Peter's going to have the great privilege of following Christ and share in the fellowship of his sufferings. Because the history of the church tells us that Peter didn't pass away at night in his bed, but Peter passed through death on a cross. During the time of Nero's persecution in Rome, he was crucified like his Savior, but yet history tells us that he was crucified up down because, upside down because he said he wasn't worthy to die in the same manner that his Savior did. And although at a moment of time and a moment of weakness, Peter denied Christ, he was loyal to the Son of God all the way to the end. Because Christ had loved him. Because Christ had saved him. Because Christ had transformed him. And one last thing here before we end up, I think when you stop and look at the last night here that the Lord has with his disciples, obviously there are some similarities Uh, between Judas and Peter. Again, both had been three years with Christ. They'd seen his miracles, his compassion, his kindness, heard his teaching. They received the love that Christ had served them with. Judas betrays Christ. Peter denies him. And again, if a man like Peter could deny the Lord, certainly any of us could. But the major thing that needs to be noted between these two men is the differences. Peter was saved and Judas wasn't. Both of these men are going to betray Christ on the night of his arrest, but Peter is ultimately restored by Christ, whereas Judas faces the enormity of his crime against Christ, not by repentance, but by suicide. Peter, on the other hand, mourned. He repented and he was restored. Judas sins against Christ with a treacherous heart and it was an absolutely deliberate act carried out in cold blood after careful thought and planning using an outward form of piety to cloak his evil intentions again repeatedly refusing Christ's appeal to repentance where Peter never did anything like that in the world. Peter never meant to do what he did. He was swept away in the emotion, swept away in a moment of weakness. Peter sinned against Christ out of a boastful heart. But again, the difference between the true is one's a true disciple who lacks strength to live for Christ at the moment, and the other is a false disciple who had no faith or love for Christ in the first place. But Christ had a love for Peter, because Peter was one of his own. He not only reconciled Peter, brought reconciliation with Peter after the the Lord appeared after his death and resurrection and recommissioned Peter. But do you remember what I read back in that Luke 22 passage? That before it happened, Jesus prayed for Peter. 
Luke 22, verse 31, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan has demanded permission to sift you like wheat. Verse 32, but I've prayed for you. That your faith may not fail. And once you've returned, strengthen your brothers. One commentator says this, ultimately the faithless betrayer having no saving relationship with Jesus must face the bitter consequences of sin by himself as Judas did, taking his own life, then entering unforgiven to hell. In contrast, Peter, who belonged to the Lord Jesus, had a Savior to uphold him even in his sin and then to rescue him when he had fallen. So just as Peter shows us that any of us can fall, he also appeals to each of us the necessity of our having, the necessity of our having Jesus as our Savior. True followers of Christ have a desire for the glory of God, the glory of Christ, or glory of God the Father, the glory of Christ. If true follower of Christ loves the brethren from those who Christ has laid down his life for, a true follower of Christ, although not perfect, has a genuine love, a loyal love to the Son of God. Because a genuine believer is indwelt by the person of the Holy Spirit. And again, the first manifestation of fruit of life of the Holy Spirit is what? Love. Love. 